welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And this week we are sharing the audio taken from our recent psychiatric drug withdrawal town hall held in May 2021. But before we get there, I wanted to let you know that we have recently released a second podcast, which is called Madden America Science News. In our new podcast, Peter Simons, Madden America's science news writer and editor, provides a weekly summary of newly published research findings related to psychiatry, psychology and mental health. You can find the new podcast on Apple, Spotify and Google by searching for Madden America Science News. So please do go and subscribe. So now on to our podcast and the following audio was recorded at our third psychiatric drug withdrawal town hall. The discussion was aired live on May the 14th, 2021 and the panelists are Adele Framer, Will Hall, Dr. David Healy and Nicole Lamberson. For our third discussion, we examine protracted problems that can arise after psychiatric drug withdrawal. Sometimes referred to as post-acute or post-withdrawal syndromes, these experiences can include chronic health problems and sexual dysfunction. What do we know and not know about responding to long-term health problems after coming off psychiatric drugs? Okay, we'll we'll get started with the um, the introductions and stuff. So, um, welcome everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today for uh, this third discussion in our series dedicated to psych psychiatric drug withdrawal. And on behalf of our partners, a disorder for everyone, the Council for Evidence Based Psychiatry, and the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, we're so grateful that so many can join us today. I've seen hello from Finland already. Hello, that's great. Um, and thank you to all of you who chose to donate today too, because your support makes these events possible. My name is James. I work for Madden America as host of the Madden America podcast. And um, before we get underway with, with an introduction to the panel, I want to mention the people who behind the scenes make these discussions possible. So firstly, we have Shira Collings and Shira works with Madden America Continuing Education and she'll be making sure that everything goes smoothly today. And we also have Lucy Fernandez. Lucy will be looking after the chat and moderating the viewer questions. And Lucy is the administrator for the uh, International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. Hi there, Lucy. Um, so we have an hour and a half today. Uh, the first hour is devoted to a panel discussion, and then we have 30 minutes at the end for viewer questions. And just to say the discussion today is being recorded, and it will be available on Madden America's YouTube channel for later viewing and sharing. Uh, please feel free to ask questions, and we'll be selecting questions for the panel in the final part of this session. We won't have time to address all of your questions, sadly, but we will review all the questions submitted and try and build any we don't get to into future discussions. To ask a question, please use the Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom window because questions placed in the chat are easy to miss. So if you put it in the Q&A section, then Lucy can see the questions raised. And please bear in mind anything you write in the chat or the, the Q&A box can be seen by everybody. And just before we get going, I have to say the panel won't be able to respond to questions about individual circumstances surrounding withdrawal. And I know this will disappoint some of you to hear, but addressing individual difficulties in this kind of format is very hard as there are so many complexities. 
And also, before we go any further, I do want to be clear that we will be discussing honestly and openly the experience of protracted problems after coming off psychiatric drugs. And if you are someone that's having a difficult time, then I just wanted to mention that you don't have to watch this discussion live. You can watch the video afterwards at your own pace and you can stop or pause if you need to. Because while it's important that we just discuss these issues honestly, the last thing that we want to do is cause anybody further distress. And the panel today and for future discussions is not providing medical advice or making any specific recommendations regarding withdrawal from psychiatric drugs. Our aim is to um, explore and, and discuss. So I, I hope that's all clear. Um, so onto the panel now, and I, I'm absolutely delighted to say that we have a wealth of knowledge and experience with us today, and I'm so grateful that the panel can be with us to talk about these issues. So without further ado from me, um, I'd like to ask the panel members to introduce themselves, and also, could you say a little bit about how you became uh, involved and interested in withdrawal-related issues? So Adele, could we start with you? Sure. Um, my name is Adele Framer, and uh, as Alta Strada, I run a website called survivingantidepressants.org, um, which is specifically to support people in tapering off of psychiatric drugs and uh, withdrawal, uh, post-drug withdrawal syndrome. Um, we currently have about 15,000 members and about uh, 6,000 case histories of people tapering and also um, protracted withdrawal syndrome. Um, th this was intentional so that we could further research. And in fact, we have managed to get some research done. Uh, my own uh, experience was that I came off Paxil, 10, millig 10 milligrams of Paxil in 2004 over a couple of weeks, which is the customary way of going off. And I had... Uh, protracted withdrawal syndrome for 11 years. I, for, I was fortunate to recover after 11 years. The latter half, I was unable to work. Um, I was uh, fortunately um, able to concentrate enough to, to start the website in 2011. Uh, so um, I am now involved in uh, I, I've been researching the subject of psychiatric drug withdrawal since 2005, and that's my main focus right now is research. Great. Thank you, Adele. David, could we move on to you next? Yes, James, you can. Hi, I'm David Healy, and I help run risk.org, which uh, uh, actually is a website that's been created by people who've been on antidepressants principally and whose lives have been, in one way or the other, uh, severely compromised by being on them. We opened up risk.org around uh, 2012, and the idea was to take reports on all drugs, but the majority of the drugs that have been reported to us have been the antidepressants. Now, going back a little bit, uh, back before we got the SSRI group of drugs, I was doing a PhD on the serotonin system. So I ended up being the kind of person who the pharmaceutical industry, when they brought the drugs on the market, figured... I was a good person to help educate doctors who are going to give these drugs out as to where the drugs fit in. And one of the interesting things about being in that role was it became awfully clear to me that what we knew about the serotonin system and what we knew about what these drugs did was totally at odds with the kind of messages doctors were being given in uh, the first instance about what these drugs did. And, you know, that there was really 
very little grounds to believe the kinds of things doctors began to believe and the kinds of things they began to say to patients when they gave the drugs out, okay? And one of the other things that became clear working with the industry during this period was that, uh, you know, um, I might be involved in trying to participate in a meeting and uh, the agreement was that there was going to be articles that came out of the meeting and one of them would be by David Healy, for instance. And then I get an email with my article written for me a very good David Healy article, but what I didn't realize was that it was written by ghostwriters and it had commercial messages of importance to the industry in it. These were hard to spot, and most people who knew me and the kinds of things I said wouldn't be able to pick out the non-Healy article from the real Healy article. So this is an introduction to the fact that almost all the literature about these drugs in the American Journal of Psychiatry and the British Journal of Psychiatry and the European Journal of Psychiatry and the Martian Journal of Psychiatry and the Lunar Journal of Psychiatry and every journal you care to think of is ghostwritten. They may have the names of distinguished authors on them from Yale or Harvard or UCLA or places like this, uh, but these articles aren't written by those people. They just have their names on the articles and they get quite a bit of money for having their names on the article. And the other thing is that the regulators don't have the data uh, from the clinical trials that these articles are reporting on. So when the article says, oh, there are no withdrawal problems from these drugs, well, actually, the regulators haven't seen the data from those clinical trials. They've seen company reports of what the data looks like. The people, but, but you know, this is just at the company report, which is, in essence, ghostwritten the way the academic articles are. The guidelines which dictate how we get treated, well, they're based on the published literature. They're not based on the raw data either. So the bottom line really is when we look at who the experts are, and James has talked about a wealth of expertise, actually it's people listening in here, the 300 or so people listening in who are the experts. The people who have been on these drugs are the experts on these drugs. They know more about what the drugs are doing than the people who write the articles saying there are no problems and these drugs work well. And this became clear to me very early on after the drugs came on the market first in the UK, when I had a group of patients come along who became intensely suicidal on these drugs. And I had a choice of believing the literature, which is out there saying there's no problem, or believing the people who came to me and told very convincing stories. And I also, by accident almost, ended up been able to get to see the kind of data the regulators don't see and other people don't see from company trials, which show that in the trials, the companies had seen exactly the same things that the patients coming to me were reporting. So one of the messages I have, I think, for all of you here is that, uh, you know, your expertise about what these drugs are doing to you is much more important than in the academic literature out there, or even than the doctors you go to see for help. Some of them will be clued in, but a lot of them won't. Now, in terms of withdrawal, which is the key issue here, this again came on the radar because uh, for me, because, uh, well, early on when the drugs came in the market, the selling point from industry was, these are antidepressants. You know, they're not like the benzodiazepines, those awful drugs that people get hooked to. In actual fact, antidepressants will cure the underlying problem, and there's no risk that you could get hooked to them. This was the early 1990s. 
And among the companies selling this kind of message, which people like me believed back then and said to patients, you know, there's no risk that you get hooked to these drugs. Among the companies with the first of the exercise was GSK, who brought paroxetine out. Now, within three years of paroxetine being on the UK market, there were more reports of people being dependent on it than there had been from 20 previous years from all of the benzodiazepines combined. And the companies knew beforehand that these problems were there. Thank you. Thank you for explaining that, David. And it's good, it's good to have you with us. Um, Nicole, could we uh, turn to you next? Sure. Hi, everybody. And thank you so much for having me today. Uh, my name is Nicole Lamberson, and I was trained as a physician assistant in the United States. Um, I'm no longer working currently or practicing due to the adverse effects of being prescribed psychiatric medications. Um, I initially took them for work-related stress. I consider taking psychiatric medications one of the worst decisions in my life, um, second only to stopping them abruptly. And coming off of them was definitely one of the hardest things I've, well, the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. I think I probably have a unique perspective as someone with both medical training and lived experience. There are a handful of us in the community. Um, my story is long and convoluted, and I think um, without a deep dive into my medical records, which I have not yet done, I don't have an exact timeline for all the medications that I took and when, but I do know um, towards the end of taking them, I was on six at the same time, uh, two benzodiazepines, Ambien, which is a Z drug, Seroquel, Remeron, and Adderall. I know I had been on and off of SSRIs and SNRIs, Lexapro, Effexor, um, and I was put on so many because the adverse effects of the ones prior were misdiagnosed as so-called mental illness, and I was prescribed more and more, which uh, happens so frequently. Once I discovered that the drugs were making me sick, um, I, I discovered that through actually reading um, a journal article by a journalist called Matt Samet. Um, he wrote his story and put it in a journal, and actually my father found it and gave me the journal article. And I read and realized what was happening, that I had been made sick by these medications. And unfortunately, I did not have the information at the time about tapering that I know now. And I went to a detox center where I was cold turkeyed in October of 2010. Um, I developed severe and protracted withdrawal. Actually, the detox center added more medications. They only cold turkeyed the ones they deemed um, addictive. Of course, we know that all of them cause physical dependence. So they just, you know, left me on physical dependence causing drugs and then added more, which I had to get off of. I'm currently, I'm off everything for eight years and five months, although I've been in withdrawal since October of 2010 when the detox happened. I did have a short period there where I tried reinstating a benzodiazepine because I had severe akathisia and was extremely suicidal. Um, for those of you kind of wondering what protracted withdrawal looks like, I'm still suffering from it currently. Um, some symptoms I still have are neuropathy, insomnia, anxiety, 
I have agoraphobia at times, which manifests looking like I have trouble driving places beyond a certain radius of my house or to new places. DPDR, which is depersonalization and derealization. I have cognitive and memory issues. Um, neuro emotions, which are feelings that come up that I don't that feel foreign to me. They feel very neurological as opposed to my actual real feelings. Um, fatigue, dizziness, nausea, headaches. I have very little tolerance to stress. I get agitated easily. Um, so I got involved in the withdrawal community because I think I was looking for some purpose while I was suffering. Uh, probably some selfish reasons as well to find out information and to save myself. And, you know, um, that's why I started researching and studying everything I could. I also felt a duty to speak up and expose this so that other patients could be spared if possible. And I administered uh, my own support group that I still have, although it's very small now, where I learned a lot. Um, because I had medical training, I could do math for people's tapers, and I really understood it well. So I started noticing some trends in the withdrawal support group about what worked for people and what didn't. So long story short, all of that led me to, uh, first, I started volunteering with World Benzo Awareness Day. Then I joined the Medical Advisory Board at Benzodiazepine Information Coalition. Alongside Laura Delano, I co-founded the Withdrawal Project, which is a project of InterCompass Initiative. I now work doing outreach for the film Medicating Normal. And most recently, I joined the Colorado Consortium's um, Benzo Action Work Group. So that's all for me. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you so much for, for being with us. And um, finally, Will, if we could hear from you, that would be great. Yeah, thank you, James. And I want to thank everybody for putting this uh, this event on. And it's wonderful to be on a panel with all of you. I've been learning from all of you, your experiences and your work. So thank you very much. Um, so I was uh, diagnosed with schizophrenia. I consider myself a a survivor of the diagnosis, the uh, the treatment that I experienced um, was not helpful. It was harmful. And I was um, seeing people around me. Some people seemed to benefit from treatments and some people seemed to get a lot worse. And um, I was not helped by the system. And I learned that a lot of the messages that I was told that were rationalizing the uh, the drugs that I was given the forced treatment that I was given, that these messages weren't actually true. If you look at the at the research, that what is defined and diagnosed as schizophrenia is a lot more complicated and controversial, that when I had suicidal feelings and I was forced into um, a hospital, the research actually doesn't support that that, um, that was actually the best um, response to me. There's not research supporting that um, a suicide assessment and, um, and uh, uh, forced treatment as a preventative uh, measure is actually um, positive and useful for people. So I started to ask a lot of my own questions um, as part of my own recovery process. And I was able to get off of medications, taking antipsychotics. And it wasn't, um, it wasn't really until I found the psychiatric survivor movement that my, um, my process of reclaiming my life uh, really came together. I was on disability for about uh, 15 years. And one of the big shifts for me was learning to have a different relationship to what was called symptoms. In um, my experience, I, I started to learn about trauma. I also learned, learned about different cultural 
um, ways of understanding different um, interpretive ways of approaching what I was going through. So um, I was able to um, really turn my life around through um, co-founding a support community called the Freedom Center in Western Massachusetts. And uh, then I went on to be involved with the Icarus Project, which is now the Fireweed uh, Collective. And when we were doing support groups, we would find many, many people coming um, for support around their medications. And we found that the messages that they were getting from their uh, providers were often um, false, usually false, often very harmful responses from their providers. So we were doing self-help work around this. And much in the same way that the women's movement in the 70s had to start to do self-help in response to the uh, male-dominated medical system to get actual perspectives and experiences brought to the fore, that's what we started to do. And I authored, from the uh, experiences in our, our groups, I author, authored the Harm Reduction Guide to uh, Coming Off Psychiatric Drugs. Um, that led to me being more involved as a counselor and um, doing trainings and being involved um, in teaching. And now I am um, a PhD student at Maastricht University in the Netherlands, um, working with Professor Jim Van Oss, as well as being a a therapist, and as well as doing community work. And um, my PhD work is focused on antipsychotic drug withdrawal. So I, I'm not going to be able to um, go so deep as I'd like to into the preliminary results, some of the preliminary results, but I'm going to present some of that. And I have it um, as some slides um, for you because I can only kind of go over the overview of it. So I'm very um, I'm very happy to be here. And I, I think that, that this um, what we're working on and what we're discussing is part of a larger problem in the United States and really globally. And it's the problem of regulatory capture, that the institutions, the agencies, the governmental bodies that are, are mandated to protect consumers, to protect patients, and to oversee industry have actually been captured by that industry and are working alongside those industries um, in, um, in violation of the, uh, the public mandate as a form of institutional corruption. So I think that the psychiatric survivor movement and the work that we're doing here is really trying to challenge that and get mental health care and uh, medical research on um, a less corrupt uh, footing and actually respond to people's experience. So I'm uh, really glad to be here and you can check out my website, which is willhall.net. Great. Thank you so much, Will. And thank you all of you for giving your time to be with us today. Um, so I'd like to, next, I'd like to delve a little bit more into your individual areas of expertise and your work as it relates to long-term problems after stopping psychiatric drugs. So, Will, if it's okay to start with you, you, you talked a little bit there about your uh, work with Maastricht University and the International Antipsychotic Withdrawal Survey. So would it be okay for you to talk us through some of your preliminary findings? Let's do it. Um, so I prepared a slide. Um, I'm not a slide set. I'm not going to be able to go through and read the entire thing and present all of it, but it is available to you to um, review for your personal use at willhall.net slash Maastricht study with two A's. And I think Lucy is putting that into the chat book chat box. So should I go ahead and share my screen? Would that be? Yeah, okay. So I'm just gonna go through this um, <clears throat> relatively quickly. Um, I first of all wanna say that it does seem that antipsychotic withdrawal has some unique distinct characteristics, very different than um, benzodiazepine and antidepressant withdrawal. And so this is really um, being aware of that, that there are commonalities and, um, and differences. So, uh, and this is preliminary um, data, and we haven't had a chance to 
um, do the analysis that we're planning on, on doing. So uh, let's see, let me get this going. Um, okay, first of all, I wanna thank uh, the many people who have been uh, involved with this, including my study committee, Jim Benos, uh, Sandra Escher, John Reed, and Joanna Moncrief. Um, and I'm just gonna go through this. Um, you're gonna be able to refer to it in, in the link. Also, I wanna thank uh, one of my collaborators, collaborators, Rachel Flanagan, who's an economist at the University of Nevada, Reno. And study partners include the International Institute for Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal. And the survey itself that we um, released was a crowdsourced. So I wanna thank all the people who gave input into what actually should be into this in the study. Um, the rationale, we've been basically discussing it. There's a gap in the, uh, the knowledge around um, antipsychotic withdrawal. And there's a lot of, of bad messages out there, a lot of corrupted research and corrupted science. Um, basically the design is we asked eight people 18 years and older to complete an anonymous web survey. Um, there were about 167 questions, most of them multiple choice, but we also had a lot of opportunity for text responses. It was quite a lengthy survey, um, 30 minutes, um, but all the data was collected and so, of course, we didn't have everybody answering all the, uh, all the questions. Um, question areas were very broad, demographic information, information about the medication use, diagnosis, um, the method of antipsychotic withdrawal, um, the side effects. Um, so we're asking uh, respondents who attempted to come off withdrawal, to, attempted to come off of antipsychotics. So that included people who had successfully come off and people who had not. Um, we had uh, 71 countries represented, uh, mostly USA, UK, and Canada, a lot of people from Spain and, and Europe as well. Um, we represented 12 different uh, languages in uh, translations of the survey itself. Um, so this is preliminary data. Um, I wanna emphasize that you've heard this before, correlation is not causation and individual experience is not aggregate experience. I think this is one of the, the real problems with medical scientific research is that we get, say, um, treatment recommendations based on ag statistical aggregates. And I think that's quite disastrous. So I wanna really emphasize that, that people should follow their individual experience, not what the percentages are saying about uh, large group um, uh, experience. It's an epidemiological study, it's a large, um, population study. So we're going to be adding more respondents and we're also doing a factor analysis of all the different variables. Um, Antipsychotic post-withdrawal harm. Um, there is an interesting paper by Schwinard, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing their name right, on rebound psychosis and supersensitivity psychosis. Uh, those are the two main problems. It's also the original problems that the person was prescribed to begin with may reassert themselves. And then there's the long-term uh, damage from antipsychotic exposure, and then damage that may be specific to the withdrawal process itself. It seems like one of the biggest harms is what gets called relapse, that someone is on an antipsychotic, they're in the community, they come off, and then they end up back in a crisis and hospitalization. Uh, but um, that can be related to the medication and the withdrawal process, not necessarily an underlying um, crisis or emotional or disorder process. Um, like I said, it does seem that there are some distinctions uh, maybe associated with the different receptors. The GABA and the serotonin um, receptors don't seem as uh, implicated in antipsychotic use. The survey is complicated, of course, because many people are using multiple drugs. Um, 
Benzodiazepine antidepressant post-withdrawal is not associated, it doesn't seem, uh, with psychosis and this kind of acute hospitalization, sudden crisis, the way that antipsychotics are. And there's some, a lot of distinct things about antidepressants and benzodiazepines, but I don't want to overgeneralize because there's a lot of complexity here, and I think my other panelists can also speak to that. Um, we broke the respondents into three comparison withdrawal groups, off all meds, off just antipsychotics, and still on antipsychotics. And the comparisons are quite interesting. Um, the vast majority of people, or the majority of people um, who responded to the um, survey were off of all antipsychotics. Some of them were taking um, other meds, but the majority of them were off all antipsychotics. Um, and many of the people who were still on antipsychotics were able to reduce their dosage. Um, some general findings, um, the off all meds group was widely represented. So we didn't find any niche of people who could not come off or weren't, or weren't also reporting coming off. Um, for example, we had 705 respondents who'd been on antipsychotics 20 years or more. And um, almost 40% of those came off of all antipsychotics. Um, there was not a correlation between education level or employment and um, withdrawal group outcome. Um, and there's a lot more correlations like this that um, we're gonna be coming up with in the uh, further analysis. So it did seem that longer time on the antipsychotics made was correlated with greater difficulty. So more lasting effects, um, more likely to remain on medications, um, more uh, correlated with rating withdrawal as harder, um, more severe withdrawal effects. Um, however, longer time on antipsychotics did not correlate with a greater likelihood of being hospitalized after coming off. So longer time on antipsychotics does seem to be a, a clear factor here. Um, and again, I'm just moving through pretty quickly. Um, other withdrawal group outcomes include age of first hospitalization did not correlate, um, greater agreement with your diagnosis correlated with a lesser likelihood to be completely off, um, more past attempts only slightly correlated with less likelihood to be completely off, um, exposure to multiple medications did not significantly correlate with being completely off. We're not quite sure, sure why that is, but that was one of the findings. Um, some other um, general findings there. Um, now, getting to the question of post-withdrawal, we asked people, "Have you had? do you have lasting negative effects? And um, the results here are, of course, the majority of people um, did say that they had lasting negative effects. We have 75 um, let's see, we have 68% saying that yes, they had lasting negative effects and only 31%. And that's broken down by whether they were still on or not or, or off or off, but also taking other drugs. Um, what uh, difference did coming off make for your health? Dramatic reports that the coming off process improved people's health. Um, did the negative withdrawal effects ever go away completely. Actually, we're showing that um, more than 70% of people did say that the negative withdrawal effects went away in three months or less. But again, it's a little difficult to analyze because there are negative withdrawal effects and then long-term effects that may be just related to um, exposure in general. Um, 
we asked people about mental health and people reported that either their mental health was about the same or got worse um, as a result of the withdrawal process, which we, we could maybe expect because of the tranquilizing effects of these drugs and the way in which they so-called stabilize people, that people may be experiencing a little bit more distress in their life when they're off of the medications. Um, but the most important thing, and I think this was the most significant finding of the study that I want to really draw people's attention to, is we asked people, were you glad you tried to come off? And this is something that I encounter as a counselor and in groups a lot. People are afraid. Are they going to make the wrong choice? Are they going to be regretting things afterwards? Of all the people that we, that we studied, people who came off, people who came off but um, stayed on other meds, and then people who stayed on their antipsychotics, overwhelmingly, people were glad that they tried to come off, whether they were successful or not. And there was no or weak correlation between what being glad that you came off with how hard it was or being on antipsychotics longer. So very strong and very also surprising uh, finding. Even of the people who had very difficult experiences trying to come off, overwhelmingly of the people who did come off, overwhelmingly they reported that they were glad that they came off. This is a very significant um, finding and it's very encouraging for me. It's also consistent with what I see um, with people once they get started with the process of antipsychotic withdrawal, they, um, they do find it to be, a lot of people find it to be something that they're glad that they did. Um, another question that we asked, which is very personally, very interesting to me because I'm someone who, I live with so-called symptoms. I live with um, suicidal feelings. I live with hearing voices. I go into altered states. I can become very withdrawn. All these things would qualify me for a psychosis um, uh, diagnosis. And a psychiatrist would maybe say, you need to be back on meds, Mr. Hall, or you have to prevent these experiences. I live with these experiences. And actually, a lot of people in the hearing voices movement, um, in the international psychiatric survivors movement, and a lot of different uh, context uh, report that, that we would rather be living with these experiences and we find even value in these experiences. We'd rather do that than be on um, medication. So we um, asked this question of, are you living with these extreme states? And 42% um, said that they are, which is a very large uh, number. And of the people who said that they are, um, a very significant number of them uh, were able to come off of medications. So of the people who were um, off of antipsychotics and whether they're taking meds or not taking meds, other meds, the majority of them, a slightly more than 50%, um, are, are living with extreme states. They're living with experiences that would be called um, psychosis. So that is very strong uh, policy recommendation that instead of saying, should you come off or should you not come off based on will you be able to be, will you be experiencing a re return to symptoms? It suggests maybe changing our relationship to what these symptoms are and recognizing that many people can choose to live with so-called symptoms successfully as part of their coming off process. So again, I understand this is very rushed. Please check out um, my, uh, the webpage, willhall.net slash Maastricht study. That's with two A's. You'll get the entire slide deck a lot of other um, resources and sign up for the email list for the survey updates and feel free to contact me um, about anything. So thank you very much. 
Fantastic. Thank you so much, Will. Uh, that, that was really helpful. Um, Adele, could, could we um, move on to you? And, and similarly, you, you've been doing some work on this. So could you tell us uh, about some of the findings of your recent paper titled Protracted Withdrawal Syndrome After Stopping Antidepressants, a Descriptive Quantitative Analysis of Consumer Narratives from a Large Internet Forum? If you could tell us about that, and I think I've got some slides to share for you when you're ready. Right. I, I Yes, thanks very much, James. Um, yeah, this is a paper that uh, was derived from a collection of cases on my website. Um, this, uh, reviewing the, the literature that's available on uh, protracted withdrawal syndrome, there's very little. And uh, to date, this is probably the most complete description of any type of uh, psychotropic withdrawal, um, aside from uh, Heather Ashton's uh, excellent papers on benzodiazepine protected withdrawal. Um, so I'm going to be talking fast because I have to cover a lot of stuff. Uh, but uh, I, I want to say uh, in introduction that um, our purpose is to uh, communicate to doctors uh, about this uh, pretty serious adverse uh, effect of uh, psychiatric drug treatment. This is specifically for antidepressants. And the, um, the language is not emotional. And I want to say that I understand how terrible and what a personal tragedy it is for each and every person to experience protracted withdrawal. Uh, it destroys lives, it destroys families. And, um, and I, I, just, I, just want you to, I just want you to know that this paper is to communicate to doctors and it is not intended to uh, condemn anyone or to frighten anyone. Um, so, um, um, James, if you'll put up the just the, the cover page, uh, I'll introduce the paper. Um, I was fortunate to work with a uh, experienced researcher, Michael Hengartner, and uh, his associates, Lucas Schulthaus and Anders Sorensen, on this. Um, it was published on Christmas Eve 2020, so you might have missed it. <laughs> uh, but it has been downloaded 9,000 times, which is a a bestseller in terms of uh, journal articles. Um, this uh, the data was collected in uh, in early 2020, and um, originally uh, there we collected 94 uh, synonymous uh, patient narratives about going off of antidepressants and experiencing protracted withdrawal syndrome. So all of these people had been uh, tagged in a um, very random way uh, for protracted withdrawal. There was no um, filter uh, other than uh, that they had been um, experiencing uh, withdrawal symptoms for uh, quite a while. And uh, while well, we can't say it's exactly random, um, it is there's there were no there were no biases in selection. So uh, so I I personally believe that this is a fairly representative sample. Um, the 94 uh, cases were winnowed down to 69 uh, by applying certain diagnostic criteria in, in the uh, paper by Shinar and Shinar on uh, uh, protected withdrawal symptoms. Um, 
we've we've included that paper. Um, it's uh, I believe it's 2015 um, diagnose a new diagnosis. I think it's called, and the um, so so that'll be in the references. Uh, six, so, so we looked at 69 of these subjects, and the um, and we uh, the we we measured we we measured the duration of withdrawal um, up to September 30th of 2020. So that was the cutoff point. Uh, now these again are the are people from my website, and they may have checked in once in a while for many years, or they may have posted once or twice uh, five years ago and not come back, or they may actually have uh, visited by uh, September 2020 and given us the, and, and, and reported on how they're currently feeling. So, so there, this is quite a, uh, a, a, a various um, a population. Um, what we found was the duration of protective withdrawal syndrome uh, lasted from five to uh, 166 months or 14 years. James, can we have the second slide? Um, oh, here are the drugs. Okay, so these are the usual suspects. The, the, they were all going. They all went off antidepressants. And um, what's interesting? What's interesting here is that fluoxetine or Prozac represents 10% of this uh, of these drugs. So people that were experiencing protective withdrawal syndrome from Prozac, if your doctor says Prozac is self-tapering, it is not self-tapering. Uh, it, it does have its own withdrawal syndrome, but because of its long half-life, it'll show up later. Um, so uh, can we move on to the next slide? Thank you. Okay, so these are the symptoms that we found. Um, it, this is important because the, the first bar says somatic symptoms. That is a composite of um, several of the following bars. So it's not a separate symptom of it on its own. What we wanted to do is to show that people were having somatic symptoms, meaning non-emotional uh, symptoms, symptoms that were not psychiatric, as well as what you would call, let's say, affective uh, symptoms, which could be attributed to relapse of the psychiatric disorder. So what we're showing here is that uh, about 73% of the uh, population had uh, somatic symptoms, which could not be attributed to relapse, and 82% and had um, emotional symptoms, which might be mistaken for relapse. And there's, of course, because of the numbers here, this is, there's a big overlap between these populations. And what this indicates is that people, there were a lot of people who were having both somatic and affective symptoms. And because they were having somatic symptoms, that indicates that their affective symptoms were not relapsed. So what we were, what we were doing is countering the argument that uh, protective withdrawal is relapse. All right, here's here's the duration. I think that most people are interested in duration. Um, so so what we found was the duration ranged from five to uh, 166 months or 14 years. You can see that yellow dot way out there on the right. That's the, uh, the person who had the longest um, experience of protective withdrawal symptoms. 
And the yellow dot means that he was, uh, um, he reported that he was recovering. So he had not completely recovered, but he was recovering. Uh, the, the green dots mean fully recovered. Um, the blue dots were people who had uh, re either reinstated the original drug or taken another drug and found that their protective withdrawal symptoms were very much reduced. Um, and unfortunately, we have uh, two uh, suicides in our population, which is, I think, very significant because it's not a large number of people. Um, 69 is not a large number of people, and yet two people were so distressed that they killed themselves. Um, this is one of the this is this is one of the reasons that protective withdrawal syndrome is so very very important for medicine to understand. People can become extremely extremely distraught besides being incapacitated by the symptoms. Um, okay, the orange dots are those who uh, had only some benefit from uh, subsequent psychotropic treatment. So, and the gray dots are the people who um, hadn't responded by September 30th, and we don't, we're not exactly sure what their current status is. Uh, but um, can, uh, the next slide will show some more detail about this. Okay, so this is um, this shows that the uh, I, th th this may give you a better idea of, of the progression of protracted withdrawal syndrome because you can see that as time goes on, um, outside of our outlier who's you know way out there on that that long yellow line at the bottom, as time goes on, there are more yellow and green um, uh, bars, and each of those bars represents a, one person uh, and uh, recovering over time um, from protective withdrawal. People, people are always asking, will I ever recover? Well, yeah, but it'll be very slow. It'll be very frustrating. You'll experience lots of setbacks. Your, symptom, your symptoms will change frequently, most likely. And, uh, but you, you won't be able to see improvement over a month, but if you look back three months or six months, you may be able to see some improvement. So I think that this is very important to understand that um, the, um, that, that there is an indication that there is progressive recovery, but it can take a long time. Uh, as a matter of fact, the, uh, the, the average, the average time to, um, to recovery is 37 months or three years. Uh, the median is about two years. So two to three years is a ballpark guess. That average, of course, is pushed out by our very long yellow outlier, uh, but you know, probably only takes off a month or so. So it's about two to three years for recovery in general, and there are going to be people who recover in a shorter amount of time and people who recover in a longer amount of time. So here's, the, here's um, another way to look at the uh, recovery situation. We confirmed uh, that uh, protective withdrawal syndrome was ongoing for about 20% or 22% of the uh, population. About 8% uh, uh, 
reported natural recovery. In other words, they, they thought that protracted withdrawal syndrome was completely behind them. And um, another uh, more than 17% uh, reported that they were had seen some significant recovery. And um, we've got about 16% that had some kind of drug treatment. Um, on my website, we always, uh, well, we don't always, but we suggest to try very low dose reinstatement of the original drug. <coughs> and interestingly enough, this often is effective for protective withdrawal syndrome. I want to comment on uh, how to generalize this information. Now, I mentioned that um, psychotropic uh, withdrawal syndrome has um, some commonalities, and this is covered very well in a, in a paper by Lerner and Klein from 2019. Um, these are two people that were associated with the FDA. And uh, they, uh, this, is, this is an overview of uh, protected with uh, rather different types of withdrawal from all kinds of, of psychotropics, including um, what are called you know, the illegal drugs, the, the drugs that are uh, drugs that, uh, that are considered addictive. So, and uh, benzodiazepines is in a gray area there. So it's always in, in both. It's always in both columns of you know addictive and non-addictive. So um, what Lerner and Klein suggested is that there are commonalities across all of these across psychotropics for protracted withdrawal syndrome, or rather any type of withdrawal symptoms. And in fact, uh, there's a natural process that when anyone takes a psychotropic drug, whether it's illegal or illegal or not illegal, whether it is uh, uh, prescribed or not prescribed, uh, that your nervous system will adapt. This is a natural process. Your nervous system is going to adapt to the presence of the drug. If you take the drug every day, your nervous system is going to adapt. And the rest of your body will adapt as well. And the uh, if you if you take the drug away, if you reduce the dosage or go off the drug suddenly, which is a terrible idea for just about any drug, um, that the um, your your body your body needs to readapt to that absence and 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 that and the the shock of not having that substance in the mix, which was, which was supporting the operation of your entire body, is what causes withdrawal symptoms. And your body has to readapt to the absence of the drug. And that, that can be because of the complexity of all of the systems involved. It's not just the target receptors. Because of the complexity of all the symptom, uh, systems involved, it may take a long time for that readaptation to take place. Uh, I think that there's a question in the um, um, among our Q and A's about whether tapering uh, reduces the risk of protracted withdrawal. Now, uh, one of the one of the things that we tried to show in the paper is that the protracted withdrawal is related to having a, a immediate withdrawal symptoms when you go off the drug. It, it's a progression; it's not a separate uh, phenomenon, which is one misunderstanding that medicine has about it, um, that if you have withdrawal symptoms while you're tapering and you have withdrawal symptoms when you 
finally go off of the drug completely, it's that's where protracted withdrawal comes from. Those those withdrawal symptoms uh, persist, and the uh, and and that is because your body needs that time to readapt to the drug. If you taper slowly, and this is somewhat of a theory, but it seems to work. Um, while you're tapering, if you go off slowly enough, your body adapts as you very gradually slide down the dosage. So again, uh, it the gradual tapering is thought to reduce withdrawal symptoms while you're tapering and withdrawal symptoms after your tape after you've gone off. Um, from people on my website who have tried to go off drugs before, this seems to work they, because if they, ha they have their previous experience of going off their drug too fast, if they do it slower, they find that it works much better. Now, there may be also a population who has problems going off the drugs no matter how slowly they go. Um, there's a lot of variability in, in your nervous system and, um, you know, this hasn't been very well studied. But naturally, of course, we have to expect that there are going to be people at both ends of the spectrum, people who can quit very abruptly without any problem, and people who have problems no matter what they do. I just have a couple more uh, comments, and that is that, um, again, that protective withdrawal sy syndrome is not very well studied, and uh, but there is a pamphlet from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, um, which is a United States uh, uh, agency called SAMHSA, that uh, has a, a description of um, protracted withdrawal. Uh, it's also in our references, and it is, uh, I, I think it applies pretty well to all kinds of uh, protracted withdrawal, although it's just um, really addressing withdrawal from the so-called addictive drugs. Um, and they, uh, it seems as though, again, that uh, it, it indicates that protracted withdrawal will last from one to three years, which uh, accords with our findings. Although this is very sketchy and it just seems as though it's a, it's a ballpark. Um, I also want to point out that um, it seems as though sleep disturbances are pretty universal across uh, tapering any any uh, psychotropic that would be any drug that is uh, prescribed or not prescribed or illegal or illegal that um, that the, it seems as though in, that withdrawal that horrible withdrawal insomnia seems common to all of them. I want to say that one of the very, very common um, results of going off of antidepressants or any other kind of uh, psychiatric drug is a very distressing uh, emotional anesthesia. It seems as though people cannot feel that the, that the positive emotions are blocked but they will often dip into you know, just horrible experiences, re-experiencing the most 
traumatic experiences of their lives. So the top is cut off, but the bottom is sort of has sort of dropped out. And uh, this is an extremely alarming uh, condition that is often misdiagnosed as treatment-resistant depression. And uh, but what it is, it's it's a consequence of um, having been on the drug, it's, it's, it's the effect of the drug. This is what psychotropics do to people, is that they remodel their nervous systems. And when the drug is taken away, there's, you know, there, there, a section of the symphony is missing. So, the, so, so this, this pervasive emotional anesthesia, it's, people get very upset about it. And uh, they, they, you know, they don't feel the love they used to feel for their children. They feel very distant, distant from their partners. Uh, it is a post-drug effect, and it will gradually fade. It could take years. I'm sorry to say, uh, but it's just it's something that it's a consequence of the drug, and it also occurs with addictive drugs. So uh, I'm afraid that there are millions of people possibly walking around with this, thinking they have treatment-resistant depression and trying all different kinds of remedies for that. Uh, and if they leave their nervous systems alone, they might be a lot better off. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that, Adele. So uh, next, David turning to you if that's okay so um I, I know that you've done a lot of thinking and work a, a around sexual dysfunction following the use of psychiatric drugs and i wonder if you would mind sharing what you've come to understand you know f for example does it only affect people after long-term use you know what, what what do we know about persistent sexual dysfunction okay james well i'm irish and when i grew up in ireland we didn't have sex you know there was no pornographic magazines, nothing. Girls were girls, and that was great, but, you know, we didn't have sex. So it was a bit of a surprise to me that I ended up um, getting involved in these issues. And the story began well over 20 years ago when a lady walked into my clinic one day and she said, look, I've got a problem, uh, you know, and uh, I'm not able to make love to my husband and I've been on uh, an SSRI. And I said the usual thing that doctors were saying, which is, yes, these drugs can interfere with your ability to make love. But, you know, once you come off them, and of course, there's no problem coming off them. Uh, you know, if you want to go away for a romantic weekend or whatever, you can just hold the drugs and everything should be fine. And she looked at me and said, well, I can rub a hard bristled brush up and down my genitals and feel nothing. And I have been off these drugs for three months. So this changed my life. I didn't actually write the case up, but I had two different cases in the course of a week or two. Uh, a few years later, the first article on what later became called PSSD, that's post-SSRI sexual dysfunction, uh, appeared. And even before that, and this is uh, the condition that my lady had, she had numb genitals, she couldn't orgasm. And if you're a man, you don't, uh, well, you know, you can't orgasm either. And you've got erectile dysfunction. And whether you're male or female, you lose libido. So the opposite condition is called persistent genital arousal disorder, where as opposed to being genitally numb, you've got genital irritability, and this can be tremendously painful. People get the nerves to their pelvis cut in order to try and cure the problem. Um, they, um, you have a lot of women, and it's mainly uh, actually a condition that affects women, um, and it's linked to SSRI withdrawal, 
a lot of women have had clitoridectomies to try and solve the problem. So, you know, this, uh, this is a grim condition. The other uh, thing that came on my radar a few years later, I mean, PGAD had actually been described before PSSD, but there's two more drugs that can cause this kind of problem. One's finasteride, which is used by young men who have thinning hair, men in the late teens, early 20s, and, you know, they figure, hey, this is awful. And the other drug that can cause the problem, and again, it's one that's used by young people, is isotretinoin, or Accutane, which is used for acne, and which is handed out by dermatologists who have never seen a problem with it, okay? So if we look at PSSD, one of the things, well, there's two or three things that this brings out to me. One is the theme that's come up before, which is the experts on what these drugs do are the people who go on them. If you look at the RCTs that have been done on all these drugs, well, you know, the single commonest thing these drugs do to anyone is they'll make you genitally numb within 30 minutes of your first pill. There's not a single controlled trial around the place that shows this. Now, I think this is because RCTs essentially don't work. We're told they're the gold standard way to find out what drugs do. But if you, um, if you don't alert people to the things to look for, um, then you're not going to find them. Um, and there's a reason to think that the pharmaceutical industry probably knew that it was a good idea not to get doctors to ask people too closely about what might be happening in their love lives, because from three or four years before these drugs come on the UK market, UK regulators had reports of permanent sexual dysfunction being caused by them. Okay, so this is before the drugs have ever been marketed. This is in the first clinical trials that were being done. So um, this, uh, this is of interest to me in terms of withdrawal. It fits into the bigger withdrawal picture in the sense that it's something that gets uh, that is most obvious when you withdraw from uh, the pills. Like, I mean, you're genitally numb and you're not able, you're, you know, you have no interest to make love and things like that while you're on the pills. But when this goes on after you come off the pills, uh, then it seems to feed into the whole withdrawal story. And it feeds in a few different ways. One is that it's clear to me that PSSD can start while you're on the pills. We call it post-SSRI, but in actual fact, people have very marked problems often when they go on the pills, and often from the first few days. You do not have to be on these pills for weeks or months to end up with a problem. A lot of people feel guilty afterwards because they say, look, I'm sure I came off them too fast and could this have caused a problem? And the answer is no. Whether you come off them extremely slowly or whether you come off them quickly, you can end up with the problem. And I think part of the reason for this is that a lot of people have the problem even before they begin to come off. Okay, it's a bit like tardive dyskinesia from that point of view. You know, this is a condition that's much worse when you come off, but it's clearly there while you're on the drugs. Okay, so um, in terms of moving all this forward, um, <clears throat> the um, withdrawal, well, PSSD also seemed good to me in terms of uh, <clears throat> answering what's going on with withdrawal in the sense of there's just a small little bit of genital skin in either males or females that he is numb. If we can work out how it gets numb, and why it stays numb, I think we have the answer to a lot of what's going on in withdrawal also, okay? And I think one of these things that's become clear to me is it's not just a general, I mean, as regards P 
PSSD. It is a genital issue. But as uh, I was talking to, to Nicole last week, and she actually mentioned vision problems. And what we see as well with SSRIs is that people can have a very similar picture that affects their vision. When you go on the drugs first, you can have acute problems. Things don't seem right with your vision. Things can get worse or may only appear when you try to withdraw from the drugs. And a lot of people, when they withdraw from the drugs, have protracted visual problems that go on for months or years afterwards. The light PSSD sheds on protracted withdrawal. And at this stage, we've got over a thousand cases uh, reported to risk is that these things can go on for years. Um, very few clear up in weeks or months, or at least it looks like very few clear up in weeks or months. The most seem to go on for a long period of time, but there's every hope that it can be cured. So this isn't a condition that looks like permanent damage. And my sense is it's not a brain condition either. It's much more a physical body problem, as a lot of uh, the problems with these drugs are. Um, you know, And you just have to look at Will there, who was on all these drugs and said he was disabled by them, but is highly articulate now. I think you know, the brains of a lot of people who are on these drugs is, are, are still probably mostly normal. Uh, yeah, the problems are largely physical. In terms of the antidepressants and withdrawal and PSSD, I think this is a feminist issue. It's not just, um, I mean, it, it is an issue for all of us, but it's mainly an issue, uh, uh, I think, for women, because more women end up on these drugs than men. Uh, and they've got reproductive consequences if you can't get off them. They double the rate of birth defects, double the rate of miscarriages, double the rate of children being born with autism, double the rate of children being born and ending up asexual if you've been exposed to these drugs uh, when you're uh, uh, in the womb. The drugs trigger alcohol problems. And in the case of women who are on these drugs during pregnancy, you're 10 times more likely to have a child with fetal alcohol syndrome disorder if you're on these drugs. And, and you know, being pregnant, most women want to get off these drugs. Their natural instinct is to get off these drugs if they become pregnant. They're sometimes told by doctors, no, you really should stay on them. It's much more important that you remain happy and calm than anything. And these drugs don't cause any harm. But in actual fact, uh, the main reason probably people can't get off them, even when they're motivated as strongly as a pregnant woman is, is because they can't get off them. It's literally so hard to get off them. Okay. So the other things that the drugs do, which make them feminist issues, I think, and this was hinted at by Adele in one of the last things she said, which is while you're on them, you become emotionally numb. Now, this can be a thing that happens afterwards, but it's while you're on them also, and it seems to be closely linked to the genital numbness people have. And this is a potent source of marital breakup. You know, it's husbands who are on them, leaving wives, wives who are on them, leaving husbands, and often afterwards, when they come off the drugs, figuring, well, you know, I actually made a desperate mistake. One of the things I thought early on with this issue, but it came up first for me, unlike the issue of bad withdrawal when it came up first, and unlike the issue of suicide, was the media are going to be interested in this. This is sex after all, you know, they'll jump in on it, but they haven't been interested. One of the extraordinary things is 
that uh, you know, there's been complete radio silence, as we used to say, a complete media blackout on the issue. The media don't seem to want to pick it up. And this is concerning, I think, from a few different points of view. One is that, again, when these issues came on my radar first, um, it was very few teenage girls were being put on these drugs. We didn't give these drugs to teenagers generally. Now, the second most commonly used drugs by teenage girls are antidepressants. And, you know, these, these are uh, um, uh, women who are going to go through the childbearing years and not perhaps be able to get off the drugs at all and potentially uh, not be interested to make love and not be interested to have children. And in terms of the boys they might meet if they're on these drugs, well, we know the drugs wipe out your sperm count if you're male. And just last week from the United States, we've had reports of falling fertility rates. Uh, the United States is falling increasingly below the replacement rate needed to replace uh, you know, the people that uh, the country has. And this is true of Europe also. So it's, uh, it's um, and this is a tricky point to make perhaps, it's a, a largely white issue. And a lot of white people go around the place saying we're awfully advanced, we believe in science and things like that, and we're the people who create all these drugs that are good for you. Uh, a lot of people of colour don't buy into this quite as much as white people do. And there's a general sense there that, uh, you know, if you're feeling out of sorts, if you've got difficulties, you turn to your community. So one of the messages that I've ended up with out of all this is um, that black and brown communities matter. And they should be very reluctant to embrace what we white people have been so keen to embrace, and which is leading to us potentially being replaced. Thank you, David. And I, I'm so grateful to you for being willing to look into this, because as we know, sexual dysfunction after psychiatric drugs has a, a great deal of shame and stigma and embarrassment attached to it, and people don't really want to discuss it. So it, it needs airing and it needs discussing. I just wondered if people out there are, are hearing about this for the first time, David, are, is there anywhere online they can go to find reliable resources to help them understand what, what might be happening to them? Yes, there is, James. You can go to risk.org, uh, and we've got a range of articles there. There's, I mean, we've got most of uh, the literature that has been produced on PSSD and PGAD and things like that. It can all be found there. You may have to hunt around a bit, but there is a tools page, and if you go into it, you'll see that there's an area for PSSD and related issues. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, David. And Nicole, turning to you now, um, I wondered if you, you know, as someone that's kind of experienced some of the issues that, that we've been discussing in terms of long-term difficulties after after coming off the drugs, I wonder if you would be willing to share your perspective both from that perspective, but also as someone who's worked in various advocacy roles for medicating normal and World Benzodiazepine Awareness Day. So I, I just wondered, you know, what your thoughts were really. Sure, James, and I'll try to not take too long so maybe we can get to some questions. Um, I think having been in the uh, withdrawal support community for 10 years now, um, I've noticed that the most burning question is always, you know, how long is this going to last? 
Um, we've heard some averages here from Adele's great work, um, but I think the truth is we can't really predict accurately what another person's experience is going to be. There's probably a lot of factors. We don't have enough um, data yet. Um, so ultimately, I think it's best not to compare to other people. Um, overall, though, in the 10 years that I've been around in the support groups, I think um, I've seen a lot of people recover. Most of the people who were present when I first showed up are no longer here. They're back living their lives and healthy again. Um, I just want to say that protracted is incredibly difficult to live with. In my opinion, the duration of suffering is the worst part and also not knowing if it's going to go or how much longer it's going to last. Uh, I think in my own experience, I've thought many times over, I would have rather had the most severe suffering that I had just kind of crammed into the, you know, the three years and then had it been over with, especially because of um, how much it affects your life, the longer it goes on. Um, you know, that was briefly touched on by Adele as well, but these syndromes have massive implications for society and mostly for the protracted sufferer. Um, financially, most people cannot work, which means they're not investing in a mortgage, a 401k, they're not paying taxes. Um, the losses are huge. Uh, personally, I didn't attend my brother's wedding. Um, what David was mentioning about you know, this being a women's rights issue, I was not able to have children because I was so ill and I'm 42 years old now. Um, I couldn't get married. So people miss out on a lot of experiences and their life. And it, it's it's huge um, losses for the person experience, experiencing protracted withdrawal. So we need to start taking this into consideration uh, when overprescribing these drugs to people long term and for you know seemingly every symptom under the sun, I just want to talk also about how poorly understood protracted withdrawal is from the experience of the sufferer. Um, first, family and friends. You know, we're all used to um, that one of your loved ones could be become sick. Uh, at some point in life, and you may have to take care of them or help them. But usually that takes, you know, one of two directions. The sick person gets better um, with some time or they die. And in protracted withdrawal, we sort of, especially when you go on for long periods of time, like, like I have and some other people do, the process is absurdly lengthy and sometimes with no signs of improvement. So those around you, they start to lose hope. They can resent you. They project their own ideas of healthy living on you. Like, oh, you just need to get, you know, go for a walk. Or perhaps I can't tell you how many times I've been told to try fish oil. Um, <laughs> told, you know, maybe, maybe you do need medication. Um, sometimes maybe you're perceived as being a malingerer or that you lack willpower. You're just not trying hard enough. So that's sort of insult to injury from your own family and friends, um, even in the online support communities. Uh, for the most part, people who are in withdrawal and experiencing this stick together and we take care of each other. But let's be real, Protracted is a club that nobody wants to join. It's frightening as a possibility. And so I've noticed even amongst our own, there's some shunning or attempts at silencing or explaining away Protracted people's experiences like Oh, I, you know, I bet they're probably drinking or doing something to cause it. Um, or those of us who are in protracted are told that our story is scary. 
Um, I've even seen people who healed quickly come back and patronize long-term sufferers saying things like, I got better because I wanted to, you must like being sick. Um, so in response to the, your story scares me, that's so understandable, but I'll just say that it's also really scary to live with protracted withdrawal. And so these people need support and they need to be able to share on honestly and openly about what they're experiencing and for how long. And also if withdrawal is just, you know, mild and fast resolving, we don't really need to address the issue. So these voices are important in awareness and change, and we need to make space for them because they're a huge part of the problem and one of the large risks of taking these medications long-term. So we need to make that known. Doctors and medical providers don't understand protracted withdrawal. Uh, I don't know if I would have believed it had I not lived it myself being a physician assistant. But anyone in protracted withdrawal has heard probably from a medical provider, um, the drug is out of your system, so it can't be from that. It must be from something else. Oftentimes, doctors will order all kinds of expensive medical tests, which most of the time come back negative, and they'll say, well, see, nothing is wrong with you. Um, it really makes it hard to receive any kind of health care because most physicians and medical providers won't even include protracted withdrawal in their differential diagnosis. It is not even on their radar. And so because it's not recognized, it's also hard for people to get disability, which many people on protracted withdrawal need because you are so debilitated by the symptoms. This misunderstanding by the medical profession is also why protracted patients turn to the internet for support and information because they can't get it from their doctors. I've had doctors tell me, you know, let's let's try to get you better. And they offer me more pills. Um, and then any refusal on the part of the protracted person is seen as, you know, you're a difficult or you're a non-compliant patient. When in reality, we know that it's often smart to not add more things into the mix. The brain is in incredibly complex. We start adding more things and you, you can just add to the problem. Um, there's lots of anecdotal evidence in the groups that some people get reactions and setbacks from taking medications and supplements. Um, Dr. Heather Ashton hypothesized that this could be from the general hypersensitivity of the nervous system. Um, so, yeah, it's incredibly difficult to interact with a medical profession as somebody who is harmed by these medications and in, in, in protracted withdrawal. I just want to. Uh, do a quick plea. If there are medical providers listening, please believe your patients when they tell you about this syndrome. It is real. For those of you who already do believe us, thank you. And please advocate for your patients. We need you to advocate for us. And lastly, I'll just say with the terminology, calling this protracted withdrawal, I'll raise the question, um, you know, is using that term withdrawal really relevant at some point? I've been off these medications for eight and a half years, and I, I feel like I have more of a long-term chronic health condition than I do a withdrawal. I haven't been withdrawing from anything in over eight years. Um, do we need to consider if this is an injury or neurotoxicity? And perhaps um, different terminology would help with understanding and maybe even more clear definitions, like what is protracted? When does it start? When does it get classified as protracted? Um, and things like that. So yes, we need um, better awareness. Need We need more basic science research to explain the mechanisms of protracted, who is at risk, how to treat it, 
um, if there is any treatment at all. Nicole, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I, I, I know it's, um, it's never easy to share the things that we've been through, but I, I so appreciate you being with us and, and talking about those experiences. Um, we'll move on to some viewer questions now. We'll try and carry on for 10 minutes past the set time. I, I hope that's okay with everybody. Um, the first question I, I want to start with is actually raised by Dr. Stuart Shipko, and I hope, Stuart, you're with us and, and you're watching us if you are. Hello. Um, uh, and this is for the panel to jump in a, a, as you want to. And Stuart asks, please ask the presenters to comment on tardive akathisia. Do the panel think it exists or am I the only professional? Over the last few years, at least 100 people have contacted me about this. So before we come to the panel, for those who may be unfamiliar, tardive means delayed onset. And akathisia is sometimes described as an inner or outer feeling of agitation or restlessness, often accompanied by extreme anxiety, although this description probably doesn't really describe the experience that people relate. So um, I, I, over to the panel for your thoughts on tardive akathisia after stopping. Um, can I jump in here quickly, James? Uh, this does relate quite well uh, to the issue of sex, where PGAD, persistent genital uh, arousal disorder, was once was initially called restless genital syndrome, and it very much looks like an akathisia of the genital area. And uh, this does persist. Uh, well, this can come on after you hold the drug, and halting SSRIs is the single commonest cause uh, you know, of this particular condition. It does come on after you hold the drugs. It's rarely there on them. It comes on afterwards and can last for months or years afterwards. So I agree completely with Stuart about this one. And it's also probably worth mentioning something that was mentioned by Nicole earlier. She talked about neural emotions. And I think this is a good phrase to capture some of the things that happen. Thank you. Any other thoughts on akathisia? Yeah, neuroemotions was coined by a, a member of my website, and that is the uh, sort of overwhelming, um, seemingly spontaneous uh, emotions that uh, show up that are due to the instability of your nervous system rather than any you know, triggering event. Uh, and they can also this can also apply to um, let's say, you know, feelings of mild irritation turn into rage. In other words, these, these negative emotions get exaggerated. Um, about tardive akathisia, uh, I, um, on occasion, people come back to my website who say that they've been off the drugs for X years, two or three years, and really felt that they had recovered, but they had experienced a resurgence of symptoms. Uh, mostly um, that would be the intense waves of anxiety that are very, very common in uh, withdrawal. And um, often it's because they there, there are a couple of triggers. One is alcohol. Another is um, antibiotics. And it seems as though in some of these cases, it's because they, you know, they fear they're feeling well and they decided to have perhaps, you know, one drink, one beer, uh, a half a glass of wine. And that seems to you know, get these, get these uh, terrible feelings going again. Um, and antibiotics in particular seem to uh, uh, 
some somehow trigger uh, really bad reactions of this sort. Um, also, steroids can do this. And as a matter of fact, one of the suicides in my um, in, in the in the detective withdrawal study had uh, was recovering from a terrible experience of many years of akathisia from withdrawal that had that had that had faded and then she was treated with a an eardrop that contained an antibiotic and a steroid and it re-excited all of that akathisia again and she couldn't bear it so um so it seems as though there can be triggers i think that in some cases there 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 could uh, it, it, it's it's an open question uh, it's something that I don't see often, though. So that, that might be a relief. Just real quickly, I, I'm thinking of someone who was on lithium for many years, as well as benzodiazepines. She came off of both, was doing great, decided that she wanted to have kids, had fertility treatments, and went into what would be called a manic uh, state and wrecked her life. So I think the idea of persistent, prolonged, conditions that uh, uh, express themselves later is very, is very real. I'll just add quickly, I, I developed akathisia, but it didn't start until three or four months after my cold turkey. Um, I don't know why that is. Maybe, you know, there's David can comment on that or something, or there's no explanation. Um, but I've met other people in the withdrawal support groups too, where they said the first three or four months was not so bad. And then it was like, boom, you know, something happened. And uh, my father was a physician and I remember he was my caregiver at the time. And I was saying, it's getting worse. It's getting worse. And he's like, that doesn't make any sense. You know, we're so used to this linear, linear healing. And unfortunately, I think in withdrawal, it's not always like that. And just quickly to add, I've seen that with antipsychotics as well as with lithium and the anti, the so-called anti-convulsant uh, mood stabilizers. These people will come off, they'll be doing great for a while, but they don't realize that they have increased stress sensitivity, it seems like. They get hit by a big stressor and like, boom, the uh, rebound psychosis or the super sensitivity, um, they're, now they're in a crisis. Yeah, it seems as though um, going off and on drugs, changing drugs, coming off of the drugs um, causes a sensitization that may, that may get triggered later. Uh, which is another scary thing about uh, psychotropics being taken regularly for long periods of time. Um, you know, medicine just doesn't understand these drugs very well. And I think a lot of people are suffering from you know, perhaps being put at risk for this. If I just jump quickly in here, one of the things that we probably make a mistake about is thinking that there's the psychotropic drugs and the other drugs. The psychotropic drugs go into the brain and the other drugs don't. Well, you know, most of the psychotropic, very little of the serotonin in me and you is in our brains. It's in the rest of our bodies. And fluoxetine and things like drugs like this are antibiotics as well as drugs which you use to treat nervous problems. The, antibiotic, the antibiotics, in particular, the tetracyclines like doxycycline. This is an SSRI. Lots of people don't know about it. They think it's just used to treat chest infections. Well, people become suicidal on it. They have their sex life wiped out of it. 
and they get withdrawal problems from it. So, you know, it's not awfully surprising that things can be triggered again later by what we think of as a drug that's very different to the SSRIs that cause the problem are uh, you know, the benzodiazepines that caused uh, the problem. All sorts of other things may well be similar drugs to the ones that caused the problem to begin with. And the fact that they trigger further problems isn't hugely surprising. Thank you all. Um, thank you for your input on that. And I, I just wanted to mention that, you know, akathisia is such an important subject that gets mentioned to us often that we are going to uh, devote a specific town hall to experiences of akathisia and to talking more about that. But I, I really appreciate the panel's thoughts on that. Um, so to move on to another one, um, a viewer has asked, how do you convince a doctor that you are suffering protracted withdrawal if they do not believe it exists? You change doctor. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to th think you, you have, I'm just going to say, you have to think about what you want from them. And it may be that what you need, you can't get from them. Right. I, I think that a lot of people spend a tremendous amount of energy trying to get validation from their doctors. And um, for the most part, it's not going to happen. Uh, so um, you, you really just need to start thinking about taking care of yourself and not relying on a, an expert to do that for you. I will say uh, some of them are not knowledgeable, but they are willing to learn. And so if you can find one like that, that is going to be the best case scenario. And then you can teach them. That is how I got my current psychiatrist that I've been with for the last 10 years. And then the other thing is just, you know, for those in the, the medical profession, it's, you know, I see so many people who are angry and rightfully so that this has happened to them. I certainly was, but I think it's, it's, it's understandable that doctors don't know about this so much. Um, in some instances, I think they're victims too. But what's unforgivable is the not being willing to learn or hear your patient when they come in and they have these papers saying, I th I'm having this protracted. I mean, it's not like there's no information. There is some. So we, we need doctors and healthcare providers to be more open to being taught by the patients because like David has said all along, it is us who knows. Yeah, and I think if there are providers and, and professionals out there, often sometimes they're worried about being sued, but there is research on medical professionals being sued. And it isn't because someone has something bad to them happen or there's a, a mistake that's made or there's some negligence. People get sued because the relationship breaks down between the patient and the doctor. So if you have a good relationship, if you're really collaborating, if you create a strong alliance, then yeah, you can take risks with your, your patients and not have to feel like you're suddenly going to find yourself in court. Thank you. Thank you all. That was really helpful and quite a, um, quite a general wide subject here in itself. But Someone's asked, if people are finding that they are struggling long-term, what, in your experience, can make a difference for them? Community, I think. That's what I think all of us are involved in. That's why we, that's why we do the community work that all of us do, is because we feel like one of the best answers to that question, I think. Uh, I'll just say that um, all the things I probably should have done before taking psychiatric medications were helpful. Um, like, you know things to calm myself down. I do yin and restorative yoga, um, you know, friendships, um, community, like Will said, um, but also just eating well and, um, you know, taking really good care of my body. And then from 
you know, the perspective of what other people can do perhaps to help us is just, we need people in protracted withdrawal. We need patience and we need support. A lot of practical support is helpful. You know, if, if your loved one is so sick that they can't clean or grocery shop, those sort of things, you can help out um, and make their life easier. Yeah. I think that, um, as we go about a normal life, we have expectations for the future. And that's, and when you uh, have an accident, like uh, an adverse effect from a psychiatric drug, it becomes very distressing that you can't make the same plans. And I think that uh, we all have to become a little Zen about this and really take it one minute at a time, um, calm ourselves down as much as possible. And, uh, just it's so hard, but but people are just cast in the same situation as, as people who have chronic uh, illnesses. You just have to take it one minute at a time and and do the best you can to um, help yourself heal. Thank you. And and is it is it fair to say that? And this is speaking generally, of course. You know, there are always exceptions, but is it fair to say that we? Research is showing a general improvement in people over time, admittedly with very, very large differences between individual circumstances. But is there is it fair to say there's a general improvement over time? That's that's what our research is generally showing, yeah. It just takes a very long time and it's extremely gradual. Okay, thank you. Um, we are kind of coming up to, we just passed our time now. So I, I do thank you all for bearing with us. Um, I want to thank you all for watching, for spending your time with us. I want to thank the panel for being so open and, and, and so honest in discussing these issues. Um, you've raised some excellent questions, which we'll try and think about how we take forward into future discussions. And also we'll be posting the recording of this event in the next few days. Um, keep a close eye on madinamerica.com for announcements soon about the next in this series. Uh, alternatively, if you visit Madden America, you can sign up for our weekly newsletter and all the details of future town halls will be there too. And really, before we, we end today, I just want to say that I know many people out there are, are struggling with coming to terms with long-term difficulty, and I am in that position too. I include myself in this. Please, please keep carrying on because there is always the hope that tomorrow will be better than today. So with that, thank you all. Uh, thank you for being with us. Uh, thank you for the panel for, for giving up their time. And I hope you might consider joining us for our next discussion. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.